Hey, if you got a Bible, go with me to John chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on screen or you should receive some notes on your way and you can follow along there as well. But I would encourage you to bring your Bible every week. I want you to know that what you're seeing, I am not making up. You know, it could be pretty simple for me just to put some words in your notes or on a screen. I would never do that, but I want you to know that uh, what you're seeing are the very words of God from the Bible. So I encourage you to bring your Bible every week. We're finishing out a series five weeks long called When Pigs Fly. And before we can do that, I actually need to give you a brief American history lesson. I don't know where you grew up, but here in Kansas, you only have to have one year of American history to graduate, which is sad because we have a deep and rich history to explore. Uh, But nonetheless, here's what you need to know that you probably were not taught. In 1825, painter Samuel Morse was commissioned by the U.S. government to create a portrait in the Capitol building of the Marquis de Lafayette. He was a leading supporter of the uh, a leading French supporter of the American Revolution. And to produce this piece of art, Morse had to leave his wife, who was recovering from illness, in the care of his parents and travel from his house in Connecticut to Washington, D.C. While he was there, a messenger delivered a one-line letter from his father. It said, your dear wife is convalescent. Now that sounds bad, but that actually means uh, she's doing better. She's getting well, uh, which is good good. It makes the painting go way faster. But a couple days later, a different horse messenger came with another letter, and it said that Mrs. Morse had abruptly and unexpectedly died. And by the time Sam arrived back in New Haven, Connecticut, his wife had already been buried heartbroken by the fact that he was unaware for more than a week of his wife's failing health and her lonely death, Morse stopped painting and started pursuing a means of rapid long-distance communication. The painter-turned-inventor tested his prototype apparatus by sending messages from the House of Representatives to the Senate, and this telegraph, as it was known, worked that short distance, but the government needed to know, could it work even longer distances? And so they built a 38-mile telegraph line from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. And on May 24, 1844, nearly 20 years after his wife's death, a large crowd gathered to witness Morse tap his message in the language he had created, Morse Code. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, the message that was delivered is from the Bible. Numbers 23, 23. You can look it up on your own, but as you know, the telegraph and Morse code has revolutionized the future. What I find compelling about that story, aside from the fact that telegraph maybe never would have been invented had it not been for Morse's wife's death, what I find most compelling about the story is that my kids and your kids will never not know what's going on in the world around them. Our kids have instant access to every newsworthy story in the world today. 
my kids and your kids will never not grow up in a world not knowing what it's like to be able to look at their phone and see exactly where their spouse is at at any given time throughout the day. And even if they're on the other side of the world and something bad happens, it will not take them but a few days to get home no matter where they're at. If you're my age or older, we have literally witnessed the literal death of long distance. There's no such thing as long distance anymore. But a hundred years ago, information travel at the speed of ships and trains and horses. There was a time in history, if you wanted to know what was happening in China, the correspondents would have to cross multiple oceans and multiple continents and into multiple harbors. And now you can send a text and receive information pretty much instantaneously. If you're the president, you can just tweet about it all the time, all day. And so I don't know if you realize this, but when George Washington died on December 14, 1799, it took a week for word to travel from New York to Virginia. Uh, Many Americans didn't receive the news until the following calendar year. Commanders of armies used to surrender in battle, and depending where the rest of the army was located, they wouldn't even get word, and they'd be fighting a battle despite the fact that they'd already surrendered the war. It was over. And it's against that backdrop that I want us to consider John chapter 4, a time when information took weeks and even years to travel. Uh, I want you to know that we're over the course of these five weeks together. We've been examining some of the miracles of Jesus, miracles that if you would hear the story yourself, you would say, I could never believe that would happen. The only way that could happen is if pigs would fly. But regardless of where you land on the validity of the miracles, most of the things that Jesus does occurs face to face. Yet the miracle we're about to read redefines reality by defying the dimensions of time and space. John chapter 4, let's pick it up in 46. Once more, Jesus, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign, circle, star, underline, whatever you do in your Bible, sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom that we have to come and gather into this place and hear from you. We are asking you to, again, do what only you can do, speak words and change lives. We believe that nothing is impossible for you. 
We've come to hear from you. Open our hearts for understanding. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Do what only you can do and draw us closer to yourself one step at a time. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So if you would again look at verse 54, it says that this miracle again was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. The language is significant and I don't want you to skim over it. That's why I made the point to say you should circle, star, underline, highlight, whatever you do, that word sign. This idea of signs is noteworthy. One of the reasons John wrote the book of John was to record the signs that he was witnessing Jesus doing or had done. Very end of the book, John writes these words, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Signs were important to John, and even if you're here today and not a Christian, signs are important to you. Signs are important because they point us to something. It could be that you happen to notice some crop circles in your field and your son loves baseball and aliens hate water, so swing away, Merrill. You guys tracking with me on? Nobody's on that. No, sorry. First service wasn't on that either. Apparently nobody watches movies anymore, but uh, these will help. These will be better examples for you. A sign over the door points to the exit, says exit, tells you where to go. A sign over a building tells you exactly what's inside the building. Signs on the road tell you where to detour or where you need to go or where the next, you know, rest stop or uh, your town or McDonald's, whatever it is you're looking for. The point of signs is to point to what you're looking for. The question before us now is what is this sign pointing us to? The second sign, where is this sign leading. We'll come back to that. Uh, first, we're going to M. Night Shyamalan this mug. We start at the end. Now we're going to rewind. We're going to go back to the very beginning. It says, once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. If you were here last week, you know all about turning water into wine and how that happened and what that teaches us. But like you, I'm wondering, why is that miracle brought up again? This happened two chapters earlier. Why is John making it a point to reference that information here? Is it significant that he does that? Kind of. Uh, It was John's way of helping us understand that we are to put these miracles, the water into wine and the healing of the boy, side by side. We are to compare and contrast with, you know, what does the comparison actually show us? Well, first of all, we know in both cases, people believed. In the first miracle, we read that after Jesus transforms roughly 180 gallons of water into wine, the best wine that anybody had ever tasted, the disciples believe in him. And in the second sign, we read that after the father uh, confirms the healing of his son, not only does he believe, but in the entire household also believes that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So in both miracles, that leads people to faith, but the contrast of the two stories is very striking. In the turning of water into wine, it is a scene of joy and jubilation and general happiness, It is a wedding party, and when you're getting married, it's generally a happy day. 
you know, unless you're the runaway bride or the, you know, fearful groom, uh, it's not such a happy day in that case, but it's supposed to be a day of joy and celebration. In fairness, I guess, unless you're the father of the bride and then you had to pay for that entire wedding and you're like, this is not generally awesome at all. But uh, now that I'm a father of daughters, it's my goal to bring back arranged marriages and bride prices. Anybody else with me on that? Like I choose. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to choose who you marry and they're going to pay me $10 million. But uh, for the most part... Weddings are meant to be a joy-filled day, a wonderful day, a festive celebration filled with family and friends. But then in this second sign, it is a scene identified as uh, tragic by John. It is a sad day. For as much joy and celebration was at the wedding, the complete opposite is happening in this man's life. It was a day where his young son might die. There isn't rejoicing. There is only requesting that Jesus do something. So what is the point? The point is, no matter what you're going through in life, you need Jesus there. In your happy times and in your sad times. You need to realize that there's going to be really good days and there's going to be really bad days and joy-filled days and sorrow-filled days. But the Lord is there for us every day, no matter what we're going through could have said it this way. You can never go where God is not. God is always with you and in your presence. He should be your hope when you're at your lowest, and he should be your confidence when you are at your highest. The only thing that will ultimately make a difference in your life is what you choose to do with Jesus. If he is just an object to be studied, then you're going to miss out, likely, on the miracles God wants to do in and through you. Uh, John said you're going to do even greater things than Jesus did. So that's crazy to think about. But John continues, on this tragic day, there was a certain royal official. Which, who is this dude? What does he have to do? Well, we don't know who he is. Scholars aren't really sure because he's unnamed. The geography of the location, we can assume that he was part of the uh, royal court of King Herod, that he was a member of the royal family. If that's true, he'd be a man of great wealth. A man by anyone's standards would have everything that one could possibly want in life. Fame, fortune, all of the above. He had everything, everything except peace of mind. And the reason he did not have peace of mind is because his son was seriously ill. And with no modern medicine and a life expectancy under 30 years, this man found himself in a very dire situation. It's likely that after the father had helplessly watched as his child's disease and sickness progressively has gotten worse and his life is starting to drain away that this mysterious royal official, after bringing in the best doctors and the best medicine and the best shamans and anything he could find that could possibly bring some relief to his son and after nothing has worked, he takes it upon himself to do something about his son's circumstances. 
This man hastily travels the 20 miles from his place in Capernaum to this podunk village of Cana. Because word has made it back to him that Jesus is in town. And we know this Jesus, he's developed a reputation. He had just weeks earlier turned water into wine, a wine of such amazing taste and amazing quality and amazing body and aroma that somebody likely brought this official because of his royal influence, one of the 922 bottles Jesus had commanded into existence. It's likely one of those bottles found their way into the royal palace of Capernaum, and that bottle of wine led to an amazing story about an amazing man. And that story became a seed in this man's mind, and when this official's son became sick, that seed bloomed into a hope. Because when you're otherwise hopeless, you will grab on to anything that you think could make a difference. If we were to put this into contemporary culture, it would be like you or me standing in the worst neighborhood, in the worst town, in the worst place. Anybody from Halstead? Is it just... I'm totally kidding. That's not, I knew people were from Halstead. That's why I said that. Uh, it's not true. But we'd be in the worst place listening to Jesus when suddenly a Lamborghini rolls up and the door flops open and a man in a designer suit steps out and falls on his knees and begins begging Jesus to help. It was a scene that would have caused everyone to stop and wonder because rich people don't beg for anything. Royal officials don't go anywhere for help. They send servants to do their bidding for them and bring the help back to them. So I hope you can understand this man's distressing and unfortunate circumstances. There was nothing that his power, there was nothing that his prosperity, there was nothing that his position could do for his son. Oh, sure, money will buy you a king-sized bed, but it will not buy you a good night's sleep. Money can buy you a giant house, but it can't turn that house into a home. Money can buy you a companion, but it cannot buy you a friend or love. Status does not mean satisfaction, and prosperity will not equal peace. What we're witnessing right now in this man's life is a crisis. You might want to jot that down. There's actually four levels of faith that are found in these nine verses of Scripture. The first one is a crisis faith. That's the most basic element of faith. Perhaps it's what brought you here today. A crisis might have been what brought you to Jesus years ago. Broken marriage, addiction, depression, that longing in your heart that there must be something more to life than what you're experiencing. Maybe you've lost a loved one, you've lost a job, you've habitually just made bad decisions one after the other, but you have had or eventually will have a crisis. This is unfortunate because life's demands rarely accommodate your crisis. 
nobody gets forewarned about the next series of emergencies that are going to occur. Nobody has ever once asked me if they can schedule their surgery on this date or can they get sick and be in the hospital on this day. Hey, pastor, is it okay if I pass away on this day? Is that working into your schedule? Nobody's ever asked that. Nobody in my car has never, you know, asked me, do you have the money to repair me right now? Because I'm going to blow up my engine and it's about to go. Uh, None of that has ever happened and it hasn't happened for you either. And if your crisis doesn't push you to faith, it generally leads you to worry. This is dangerous because worry is one of the most destructive person, uh, destructive forces a person can have at work in their life. Modern medical research has actually proven that worry breaks down our resistance to disease. More than that, it actually destroys the parts of your body uh, in your nervous system responsible for your digestion. It damages your heart. It has been said that excessive worry can actually shorten the human life. Isn't that ironic? One of the things that you're most worried about is how long you're going to live. And worry in itself ends up causing you to live less than you could have otherwise. This man is worried about his son, as we all would be. But verse 49 is kind of the pivot point of the story because this man is under the impression that Jesus has to go with him in order to heal his son. But Jesus defies all scientific reality and all dimensional truth of time and space and simply says, go, your son will live. And the craziest part, the man takes him at his word. I call this confident faith. This man has never met Jesus before. He has only heard some splendid stories, perhaps had got this bottle of wine and and found out who this man was that was able to do this. So he's tasted and seen the effects of the Lord, and that made an impact. But regardless of whether that is true or not, the timeline of the whole event is rather remarkable. So follow me on this. This man was sure that if Jesus could just go with him, that he could touch him or do something magical and his son would be made well. But Jesus wasn't going anywhere. He simply says, no, I I took care of it. Combine that with the knowledge that this man also recognizes Jesus is his last chance. If Jesus is wrong or lying by the time the man got back home, his son would likely be dead. And what does it say in verse 50? He took Jesus at his word and he departed This is significant because this man accepted the words of Jesus at face value and did not go immediately home to check and make sure that it was true. He simply believed Jesus. This is confident faith. Except how do I know that he didn't go home right away to make sure that Jesus did what he said he was going to do? That's why I said the timeline of this whole event is rather important because that it says in the scripture that he met his servants on the way home and they confirmed that yesterday is the time that they got well. And if we know anything from history and this specific culture, people don't travel at night. Servants, it was illegal to send your servants out at night. There's no 
flashlight. There's no roadside signs. There's nothing to help you navigate besides bandits on the road and a very dangerous travel system. There's also wild animals that make traveling at night rather impossible. And instead of taking Jesus at his word and running that marathon back home, this man looks into Jesus's eyes and listens intently to his words. And somehow there was this undeniable confidence in that man's heart that Jesus meant what he said, and so he stays overnight. And in the same way, we must accept God's word to us by faith and not worry and not let fear grip our lives. That's what this man did. He believed in the words of Jesus. And we have the very words of God recorded for us in this book. And do you believe God's word to you? Hundreds of promises in this book that you can claim by the power of Jesus Christ. But you're not going to know them unless you take time to read them. And not just read them, but also study them and put them into action. If we learn anything from this man, it's that you won't be blessed by what you hear. You'll be blessed by what you apply. This man heard about Jesus, but if he hadn't taken the steps to travel the over 20 miles out of his way from Capernaum to Cana, he would have never received the miracle or the healing of his son. He had to do the work to go petition Jesus to do something on his behalf. Write this down. After he had the confidence to uh, meet Jesus, his faith was confirmed. That's the next level of faith, uh, confirmed faith. It says in verse 53 that the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. His faith was confirmed. Now, skeptics would like to say that all this is just one big coincidence. The fact that this man's son was healed and uh, he went to Jesus, it, it wasn't miraculous, it was coincidental. Kind of like how in February of 1865, mere months before this father was assassinated, Robert Todd Lincoln slipped off a railroad platform as a train was approaching. And as he helplessly tried to scramble back up the platform to no avail as a train is rapidly approaching and he's hanging perilously close to this train, an unknown man grabbed the back of his collar and helps pull him to safety. And when Robert Todd Lincoln looks up, he notices the man, that man, Edwin Booth, famed actor and brother of John Wilkes Booth. He writes about it in a story to a newspaper. Is this coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was divine intervention. Somebody once said, coincidence is just God's way of remaining anonymous. Except anonymity is not a characteristic God is particularly fond of. Romans 1.20 says, Since the earliest of times men have seen the earth and sky and all God made and have known of his existence and great eternal power, so they will have no excuse when they stand before God on judgment day. See, our faith is confirmed by how we view the world. 
God's not trying to hide himself from anybody. All you need to do is take a look around and see the creation and see the stars and the sky and the earth and everything that God has done. A confirmed faith will always then lead to a contagious faith. Contagious faith is the final level. This man's faith didn't just heal his son. It changed the destiny of his household. I like that because I pray every night for my kids that they will only know the love of God. And I ask God that he makes them strong and courageous and that they love him every day more than they did the day before. And I know on some level that's up to me. And how I live is my faith contagious so that my kids are catching my example. God says we're supposed to be his ambassadors here on earth. So I wonder if your faith has propelled you to get to the place where you're inviting people to participate in God's mission of redemption. The greatest mission that you can ever give yourself to. I wonder if your faith has grown so much that you want to see people healed of their sickness, what the Bible would call sin. Sin is separating us from the God of the universe, and the only way to have that sin forgiven is by the blood of Jesus Christ who died on a cross for you because he loves you so much. Two of you are still with me this morning, okay? We have the greatest news in the history of the world. It's supposed to be contagious to everybody around you. And as a church, we should have a culture of inviting people to come to church. Not just on holidays, but every Sunday. I hope you realize that you hold the keys to defying the dimensions of time, space, reality, not like in some Dr. Strange sort of way, but rather you get to participate in God's redemption story to change people's eternal destinies by how you live. And what you're doing is impacting the world around you. And one of the easiest ways for you to change people's destinies is for you to say, hey, do you want to go to church with me? And you do what you can do, and I'll do what I can do, and what I can't do is know all of your friends, and maybe what you can't do is articulate the gospel in a helpful way, so I can promise you, anytime they walk through this door, they'll get to hear the gospel, as long as I'm the pastor here. And we'll always proclaim and herald the name of Jesus Christ and that he is going to change things and can change you and make you new by washing you clean. And he is the single greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. Now, I want to teach you how to be able to articulate, articulate that to your friends, but in the meantime, let's just partner up. You just invite them here, and I promise you that they'll get to sit in a place that's safe for them to hear the gospel. And the reason it's important for you to do that is because when you invite people, suddenly you have way more skin in the game on what's happening in your church. When you know your friends are coming, and this might be the only chance that that you get, suddenly you care. Are the chairs lined up straight? Are the kids' ministry rooms clean? Maybe I'd better go back there and volunteer because when my friends come, I want them to feel safe to leave their kids back there so they can sit in here and not be distracted by anything and not wonder what's going on back there with their kids. I'll just get back there and I'll serve and I'll make sure the coffee's hot and I'll make sure the food is fresh and I'll be the one to shake their hand at the door. And suddenly you care 
If everything happened, the microphone work, was, was the message good? And uh, You've got to come back next week. He's usually not that terrible. And I just promise you that like you are invested in the future of what happens in this room right here. And this man in our story, the royal official, he found out about Jesus because somebody told him and somebody told you. And why would you let the message stop with you? And in turn, this man's entire household believed because their boss's faith led to Jesus healing his son. Jesus was willing to cure this man's child, but he didn't so say so right away because he wanted to do something greater in this man's life than merely cure a disease. He wanted to save a soul. And that's how the story ends. Not just for this man, but for in his entire house. And again, I wonder what dimension-defying miracles God has in store for you that you could participate in changing not just your life, your entire household's life, or your entire family's life. This is what is really at stake. So write this down and then we're done. Pray like it depends on God. Work like it depends on you. This is what God wants from you. Pray like the only thing that's going to make a difference is God. But work, like the only thing that's going to make a difference, is you. I love the fact that the people I'm praying for can escape my presence, but they cannot escape my prayers. Isn't that good news? I can keep praying for them over and over. That wayward child, that wayward spouse, whatever it is, they can escape from me. They can't escape from my God. So we pray bold prayers, but we don't just pray, we also work and we serve. And, and just like Samuel Morris's tragedy led to action, don't waste one of your tragedies by pushing you into fear and inaction. Just like this man's crisis led him to go out of his way to meet Jesus, we need to go out of our way to serve others. The best thing that you can do to survive a struggle is to serve somebody else in a similar situation. Shameless plug, unapologetic plug, this is why I want you back here next week for Serve Sunday. This isn't about cleaning gutters. This is about changing lives. We're showing people the love of God. That because He first served us, we want to serve them and get nothing out of it other than the fact that we love you and we care for you and we care for this community and we want to help. But that being said, what I really want you to get out of today is there are some things in life more important than getting your bills paid or getting your health restored or getting through whatever crisis you're currently facing, getting that resolved. And the thing that's most important for you right now is that you get into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Sometimes God will allow calamity and hardship or difficulty to wake you up to get your attention for your need for God. Listen to me very closely. A lot of people want God to change their eternal destinies, but not their mentalities. 
And that's a difficult truth to understand and realize, but God has a lot more for you to do than simply go to heaven. Or if when you died, you'd immediately get transported there. Instead, he's asking you to get involved, to participate, to go out of your way, to serve other people. God wants to do both. Change your eternity and your mentality. And if your faith isn't leading you to make some drastic changes in your life, might I submit to you that your faith probably isn't trending in the right direction. Make no mistake, it's no coincidence that God brought you here today. It might have been to challenge you and your inaction. It might have been to change your heart because you've never heard this gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. It might just be that God's trying to draw you in closer than you were when you first walked into the building. Faith is not something you have to conjure up. Faith is simply when your prayers meet your actions. Now you believe in God and you pray like it depends on Him and you work like it depends on you. Get involved in God's story. Don't let it stop with you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This is a holy moment that we're going to beg God to move on our behalf. God, we believe in you. We believe in your power. We believe that miracles like this still happen today. We believe that by the power of your Holy Spirit, addictions can be broken, marriages can be restored, health can be restored, diseases can be healed, finances can be fixed by your Holy Spirit. There are people in here praying for those things right now, God, and I'm standing in the gap praying that you do something miraculous for them right now. I believe in your power and I'm trusting by faith that your will be done. Whatever you're trying to teach them, open that up. Whatever you're trying to do in their life, or in somebody else's life, make that known. Don't hide your face from us. For your glory, as we continue to pray, as you continue to listen to that voice, God might be challenging you in your personal walk. That you might have thought you were a Christian, but God brought you here this morning to say you haven't been living right. Maybe you've never believed. Bible makes it clear you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. And you can trust that salvation. God's not going to take something from you that he freely gives you. And I want to give you a chance just in your own heart to say, God, I believe in your son Jesus that he died on a cross, but he rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm new. I was dead in sin. Now I'm raised to life. Thank you for saving me. And God, I thank you for new life, that you forgive all of our sin, past, present, and future. We lay stake on the claim of your son, Jesus, and our life is found in him. Hallelujah. From here below, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.